Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Greatest of All Talk. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. One thing I always get a kick out of is when the goats tell us, you know what? I went back in the archives. I dug out an old episode from whatever it might be, and I had such a good time listening to you guys yammer about something that either held up really well or didn't hold up at all. And so what we thought we would do is let's close out 2022 with a bang. That's right. This is the last episode of the year, and we're going to transport you back in time to the very end of the 2022 NBA Finals. That's right. Steph Curry got his first Finals MVP. The Golden State Warriors won the fourth title of their dynasty. Of course, the poor Boston Celtics lost three straight games thanks to the curse of the lobster. And Andrew, (laughs) I know you and I, we taped this episode late night after game six. I was in my Boston hotel room probably chomping on some just disgusting pizzas. So glad after like two and a half months on the road that I was going to be able to get home. What do you remember about that night? Well, uh, first and foremost, I have not listened to this episode that everyone's about to listen to. Um, So I'm worried about what might have been said on there. But uh, what I remember about that night is just sheer joy watching Steph, Dre, and and Clay. I almost called him Claymond. Watching those three (laughs) celebrate together was just fantastic. And Clay Thompson's press conference was particularly inspired. I believe he called out the Grizzlies in the middle of that press conference. Oh, for sure. And just all of it was so enjoyable and satisfying as a basketball fan. And, you know, looking back, I still can't believe that the Celtics blew that series. I picked the Celtics to win that series. The Celtics probably should have won that series. But Steph was just too good, and the veterans came through when it mattered for the Warriors, and defensively, they were flying all over the place. So really, this is sort of an olive branch to all the Warriors fans out there who have been miserable for the last couple of months and have been (laughs) attacking me in the emails for being too negative about the Warriors. I promise this is a record of me not being negative about the Warriors and um, also one of my favorite basketball memories. Yeah, I can't imagine what could heal Steph Curry's shoulder faster than listening to this episode and remembering the good times, right, Andrew? (laughs) So without further ado, you're going to get a chance to listen back to it. I'm going to get a chance to listen back to it. The GOATs are going to get a chance to listen back to it. And I think as we head into 2023, we can only hope we get a finals as memorable as those 2022 NBA finals. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Greatest of All Talk. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line in Boston, Massachusetts, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Welcome, goats, to the Afterglow podcast. We're taping this almost immediately after Game 6 of the NBA Finals, where Stephen Curry claimed his first Finals MVP trophy The Golden State Warriors won their fourth title in the past eight years. And Andrew, to me, it was a historic night for one reason and one reason only. Mm. For years on this podcast, the single corniest thing that I have ever said across the board has been the Red Lobster jokes, man. Anytime Boston comes up over the years, anytime people talk about the Celtics, I make these really annoying red lobster jokes, which aren't that funny. 
How many times <laughs> over under do you think you fake laughed at the red uh, lobster? I was jokes? just gonna say. I, I mean, it's off the charts. The number of courtesy laughs I've given the red lobster jokes. Are we officially retiring them tonight? I mean, I feel like at this point, it's an internal bit that we should keep rolling with. I mean, if you mean like retirement as in we're raising it to the TD Garden rafters like it's uh, Larry Bird's jersey, then we're retiring it because these NBA finals, Andrew, I will always remember them as the Red Lobster series. The Boston Celtics so full of confidence after their game three victory, swaggering all over the court. Maybe Stephen Curry's injured. They come out for that pregame meal before game four, and they mm. serve the media hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of Red Lobster. Because who knows? Maybe they're not going to come back for game six. What happened after that, Andrew? Karma happened. Stephen Curry happened. The Golden State Warriors won three straight games happened. The Western Conference reigns supreme again happened. It all got away from the poor Boston Celtics fans. It was the curse of the Red Lobster. You heard it here first for 350 jokes over the past five (laughs) years. What can I say? Oh, man. I would love to know how much they paid for all of those lobsters. It did look like they had hundreds of lobsters there for the assembled media. And lobster inflation, they call it lobsterflation, has been a big story in the <laughs> spring and summer here on the East Wait, Coast. So it's like a baby formula thing? Uh, yeah, it is. There's some sort of shortage and prices have skyrocketed. So um, maybe Wick knew a guy who knew a guy and they got a good deal on the lobsters. Who can say? But yes, the Warriors are your 2022 NBA champions as of about an hour and a half ago. I want to start, Ben, with this note we got from Misha. Now we have multiple Warriors fans uh, named Misha, but this Misha- Wait, 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 we do? We do. <laughs> oh my God, this yes. is this is a breaking news to me because we get so many emails from Misha and I thought there was one guy just hammering away like 65 emails a day. So there's multiple. Is that two, three, six, ten? How many? There are two Mishas. We're going to read emails from each of them on this show. But first, from Misha in October of 2021, October 20th, he sent us this note. He said, I know it's been one game, but I had a Gulliver-level vision. The Warriors are winning it all this year. They're going to be a top three seed in the West. Poole will be most improved. Poole probably should have been most improved. Steph will finish with another MVP. Not quite on that side. Can you just read this guy's email instead of taking shots at John Morant for absolutely no reason? We're taping this thing oh at one twenty in the morning. You trying to flip, make make me flip out on you? Come on, I man! Totally I totally forgot. Move. I totally forgot. John Morant won the most improved. Good for John Morant. Okay, Steph will finish with another MVP. He says Clay comes back in December. They're going to win the West. Then they'll step right up and beat the Nets. Oh, wow. This is an October 2021 email. Either way, I just want to give credit to Misha for calling his shot and having it all come true for the Warriors tonight. Now, beyond that, where do you want to start with these two teams? Well, I want to start pretty much with where Misha's thinking. Now, I don't know if you remember this. Maybe it was October or November. I wrote a column that was like, Stephen Curry's playing the best basketball of his career. And I'll be honest, I did reach on that headline a little bit at the time. I didn't feel good about it, as you Mm. would say. And I was like, maybe I'm overstating things a little bit. 
But I got caught up because he was playing great basketball and he, and he came to L.A. and just put it on the L.A. teams, right? And you fast forward to January when Clay came back and I had kind of a toned down version of Misha, uh, Misha's vision. I was sitting there in that Chase Center, first time I'd been to that arena. It was so loud. It was so rock. And I remember telling you, dude, it's going to be hard for these guys to get beat at home in the playoffs, right? Almost doesn't matter what seed they are. If they're going to basically win all of their home games, they're going to be a big time, uh, big time problem. And you put those two things together, Steph Curry, just apex of his career peaking, the amazing home court advantage they had throughout the postseason, the championship DNA stuff that's gotten a lot of talk here over the last couple of weeks, and rightfully so. And man, they actually did it. They delivered the storybook ending that, you know, people might have thought was a pipe dream back when Misha emailed us or even I was like, kind of like, eh, is this a narrative? Could this actually happen? Kind of <laughs> waffling a little bit back in January. And sure enough, they did it. But the fascinating thing to me about Misha's email is this idea of the Nets, right? Because I had a, a similar path for Steph to go through where he was going to have to like beat LeBron in the first round, then go through Chris Paul in the Western Conference Finals, and it was going to be in, and then go through KD in the finals, and it was going to be Steph Curry-like answering every single rivalry from throughout his career, right? Mm -hmm. And a completely different story emerged. Steph Curry was the last 30-plus superstar left standing. Everybody else in his age generation, whether it's LeBron James, uh, Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Kawhi Leonard, all of those guys went by the wayside well before we even got to the conference finals. And what Steph had to do was he had to grind out these victories against the next generation of talent, MVP Nikola Jokic, John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies on the rise, Luka Doncic, you know, in consideration for one of the best players in the league, and then Jason Tatum, your MVP, who certainly did not play like an MVP in this series, but nevertheless a promising young player. So the story was not like, oh, Steph versus KD, we get this great showdown, the post-Warriors uh, you know, divorce showdown. It was Steph Curry's longevity, his ability to bounce back from injury, his incredible consistency, and then just his ability to get to those peak levels that none of those young guys can quite do yet in the postseason is fantastic. To me, this was a historic achievement for mm -hmm. the Golden State Warriors. This isn't their best team ever, no question about it, but it was maybe their most memorable title run. And for Steph Curry, I thought it was his most impressive front-to-back uh, postseason of his career in large part because he started off coming off the bench because of a foot sprain just incredible I'll never forget the game four and man he put the Celtics away in game six going to the ring finger celebration with 18 minutes <laughs> left in the game Andrew putting the Celtics to bed when he hits that three-pointer with a couple minutes left embracing Del Curry on the baseline, crumbling to his knees, you know, kind of overwhelmed by the moment on the court in the closing seconds of that game. Beautiful, man. It was like a movie. It felt a lot like last year's finals. You know, Giannis, that that closing was almost too good to be true. I remember you and I had that conversation. It's like, this is real? Like, yeah. you know, this is, feels like a dream. Same deal this year. Yeah, it was very cool. And you mentioned the celebration from Steph with 18 minutes left. It was that kind of night at TD Bank North. And I, I think this needs to be a, a bifurcated podcast because look, like, obviously, I mean, I think this series was more about the Warriors winning it than the Celtics blowing it. But still, 
the blinding sadness of what we just saw from the Celtics nucleus really needs its own section of the podcast. So I vote for doing that after this. Like, let's talk about the Warriors for 30 minutes or so, and then we can just roast the Celtics. But I do want to kick it off with the Warriors. Yeah, start with the the champagne before we get to the green tears, Andrew. Because look, hey, look, win with class, lose with dignity. I always say that. I mean, I could do an hour and a half on this choke job by the Boston <laughs> I Celtics. I and mean, it's a every big direction. Part of the story. I mean, I cannot believe how bad they were down the stretch, but we'll get to all that. Can I well, take a minute to explain what was on my mind tonight as I watched the Warriors pull this off? Please do. And I was kind of turning this all into the Steph show, and the Warriors have never been only the Steph show. So were there other Warriors guys kind of factoring into your vision? I mean, obviously. Amazing full circle moment for Clay. Draymond really got it done. Incredible turnaround within the series from Draymond Green. Steve Kerr, another notch on his belt. I mean, you know, you just go right down the list. Everybody gets a lot of credit when you win. Bob Myers, Joe Lacob, what a great <laughs> owner. You know, how far should we go? Chase Center, incredible building. Well, yes, there's a lot to say, but you'll see on my finals factor list, this is my final finals factor list of the postseason. Uh, I do have game six, 2019 on there. And that's there because of all the games I ever went to as a basketball journalist or all the games I've been to as a basketball fan, that experience was hands down my favorite. Warriors Raptors at Oracle three years ago. And to set the scene, like you had Kevin Durant go out in game five, super emotional. Steph and Clay just like stabbed the Raptors in the heart over the final three minutes of that game to force a game six. Clay is playing on a bum ankle. Draymond was up and down that entire series. You had Iguodala try to eke out one more postseason as like a relevant rotation player. And beyond those guys, the Warriors had absolutely no bench. Like, the cupboard was shockingly bare. It was Alfonso McKinney and Quinn Cook and literally no one else who was playable by that point in the season. Did they go into, like, Steph Curry's extended family yet at that point? Or was that later? Because remember, they kind of pulled the whole, like, let's sign Giannis's brother's, uh, you know, tactic. I mean, they were going that direction for a while. Yeah, it was just incredible. Um, And actually an interesting contrast to what we saw in this series. Maybe they learned the value of depth uh, a couple years ago. But in any event, what I loved about that game was watching how hard the Warriors' nucleus fought despite everything that was working against them like clay came out played one of the best games of his career before he got hurt then he blows out his acl and still hobbles out of the oracle tunnel to make both free throws and draymond was going crazy too he had 19 rebounds and 13 assists as part of a triple double in that game iguodala hit shots and obviously like we mentioned this a couple uh, episodes ago They had a shot to win it at the end, and Steph couldn't hit it. It is what it is. But I walked out of the building that night feeling like it was some of the coolest basketball I had ever seen. It was an exhausted, proud veteran team fighting to the absolute death and getting by on nothing but like title DNA and and IQ. And back then, as we, we podcasted that night, and it was clear that like Clay was going to be out for a year. 
KD was leaving and the future was looking really, really murky. And I thought there was a good chance that game was going to be the end for the Warriors dynasty. And if that had been the end, it would have been fitting. Like the bottom line with this Warriors core is they're proud, they're fearless, they're incredibly mentally tough. And no matter who the opponent is or what the stakes are, like they will go down shooting. Over and over again, adversity has brought out the absolute best in these guys. And so seeing that game six, three years ago and thinking back tonight to how dark it seemed then, it just made it so much more satisfying to watch those guys pull this off and close out the win in six in Boston, which was extra badass and a little bit cruel. Oh, my God. Did you hear the Warriors co-owner being like, we did it on the parquet floor, and he's getting booed by the Celtics oh fans God. who are still there during the championship celebration? Just wild. You know, that was actually, like, brilliantly and beautifully said by you. Um, the only thing I want to add is there was this kind of conversation on Wednesday. Draymond was retelling this story about how he, Steph, and Clay have kind of been able to stay friends and stay teammates in mm-hmm. a, you know kind of an NBA era where that just doesn't take place. And when you really break it down, you've got Steph Curry who likes to golf in his free time, who's pretty quiet, who's singing like Moana songs with his daughters, right? Uh, incredibly religious. You've got Clay Thompson who spends all of his time on his boat, who's who basically sounds like Bill Walton when he's giving interviews at this point, talking about how he's an Aquarius and the ocean has healing powers and all this stuff. And then you've got Draymond, just an absolute, you know, competitive psycho, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. who is, um, you know, incredibly ambitious in terms of like launching his media career. If that was a Venn diagram, there's not a ton of their personality characteristics that overlap. And yet they're all 100 out of 100 when it comes to the competitiveness factor, right? And even among NBA players, you know, there is a huge range. You know, you can be a very talented all-star level guy and not have that dog in you, Andrew, (laughs) as you're describing, these guys never wanting to quit. I don't think I have ever seen Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, or Draymond Green quit in a big moment. Now, does Draymond take weeks and months off of games that don't matter? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But when you're talking about 16 game players, man, did he back that up in this postseason? Did Clay back it up uh, in games four and five with some big moments? And did Steph back it up coming off the foot game and then just driving the dagger in in game six? It was a clinical finish. It rubbed off on everyone. It completely transformed who Andrew Wiggins is as a player. It let Jordan Poole have a monster career and probably wind up, you know, tripling or quadrupling his potential career earnings by getting to play with these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what makes him special. It's what, you know, win connoisseurs, man. That's <laughs> This is why I try to hype the Warriors when I get the chance, right? Because th- they do do it the right way. Yeah. And it's because they just want to beat you. Whatever it is, they want to beat you. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned corniness at the top. I don't want to get too sentimental here, but this is a really special group. And when we skip ahead no, let's go 20 all the and way. 30 years, like we're all going to be really glad we watched these guys play live. And everybody who watched them live is going to talk to like future generations and be like, the Warriors were fucking awesome. And also you have no idea how lame the KD years were, but the Warriors nucleus was just incredible. And now 
they're all bulletproof. Like there are no more dumbass conversations about Steph, no more whispered conversations about whether Draymond is actually a Hall of Famer, Clay. None of them are going to be questioned again career-wise. Well, and that's and the way al- it should be. Not only that, Andrew, the sky's the limit, you know? I mean, these guys could win again next year. I'm not saying that they're going to do it. I mean, certainly there was moments in this series where I thought they're not going to get this one and they may never do it again. But mm-hmm. the way they responded in these last three games, it's going to be hard for anybody to beat that team. And, you know, a lot of people want to say, well, watch out for the Clippers. You know, you think the Clippers are going to be able to handle these guys in the fourth quarter? You know, they're going to look better than Tatum and Jalen Brown did uh, tonight. Which wouldn't be difficult. I mean, those guys were slipping and sliding all over the court. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, a disaster. Uh-huh. But, you know, really push comes to shove. Fourth quarter, game six, game seven, you're betting against the Warriors trio. You're going to take uh, playoff P and Kawhi Leonard. I'm not. I mean, that that doesn't sound great. So um, will their luck hold up? Will their health line up like it did this year? I mean, th- that's real questions uh, yeah. f- from Golden State side. But if you're saying – the legacy stuff, no, they're they're completely validated forever, and now they can get into some pretty interesting uh, company here if they do it again. You know, I mean, okay. they're already getting awfully interesting. Like, I, I'm not sure where Steph is in the top ten, but he's for sure in the top ten at this point. We'll revisit his all time ranking next week, perhaps. But Draymond, you mentioned the response from these guys. The response from Draymond. After the first few games of this series where he was having the worst series of his life and looked like 100% washed, on the way out of game three, CJ McCollum told him that he was picking um, (laughs) the Celtics to win the series. And Draymond said, essentially, I don't care. The Celtics will still be ringless just like you. Um, and now that is a much better take than anything Kendrick Perkins has said during his entire career, bro. And if you're trying, I'm going to hold you accountable here as captain accountability. That is an incredible take from a current player. And he backed it up and he delivered. He backed it up big time. He really put himself out there during this series. I mean, podcasting after every game. God, I hope he live pods the celebration tonight. I don't know what club in Boston they're going to, but he had a target on his back for this entire series. The whole country was making fun of him for like five straight days at one point. And on the back end, he played really high-level basketball for the Warriors, despite still not being able to score, not really being a threat on offense. But defensively, he was everywhere. And I know we're going to get to the Celtics in part two of the podcast, but I do think the Warriors' defense deserves more credit than they will get as we talk about how everything went wrong for the Celtics. We're going to give them a lot of credit on the defensive end. Let me, um, you know, the turnaround to me for Draymond and for a lot of the other guys in this series from Golden State side, it all started with that game four from Steph Curry. You could just tell once he's actually healthy, when he's going for 43 points, when they're pulling out a monster road win, that it just filled all those guys with so much confidence. And it was sort of like a recalibration. It was like, oh, yeah, we've got home court advantage back. We don't have to worry about blowing that game one like we did at home. Um, you know, we don't have to, you know, hold our heads about the other loss uh, in Boston. You know, it's a new series, best of three. We've got this. And I feel like everybody's energy level across the board shifted from game four on for Golden State. 
And I think what that wound up doing is it really pushed back against a lot of the prior assumptions that we, but also other media members had made, uh, you know, coming into this series and even in the opening stages of this series. First things first, you know, I think we were generally saying Boston's a better team, Boston's a better team, Boston's Mm -hmm. a better team. Clearly, over the last couple of games, Boston was not the better team. Golden State was better on offense, and Golden State was also better on defense. On top of that, they were better mentally in clutch moments, and they had more gas to, in their tanks. They they did not tire out. Um, their older guys did not tire out like we might have had expected them to do against Boston's younger legs. So while Boston was was the more athletic team, that held up. And while they were maybe the more physically empowering team, by the end of the series, a lot of the other assumptions that uh, you know we and others were making about the Celtics just proved to be wrong. Case in point, I would say the Celtics' turnover issues. Now, I was having a really good time at Jason Tatum's expense. Oh, look at this guy. He's throwing it around like he's Devin Gardner for Michigan, You know, hitting the, the DBs <laughs> between the numbers. Remember? And I was ranking all of his turnovers and all that. As the series went on, he just kept having turnovers, but so many of them were instinctive plays by Golden State's defense. They knew exactly what he was going to do. They knew what he was capable of. They knew what he couldn't do, and they exploited his weaknesses time and time again. Same thing for Jalen Brown. He was actually getting pretty loose offensively early in the series, getting to his favorite spots, feeling good, especially early in games. They just turned that faucet off. You know, sorry, Jalen Brown, you are no longer a source of regular offense. And when you go down the list, even of Boston's role players, Andrew, I mean, is there like an invisibility cloak in TD Garden where if you step on the parquet, all of a sudden you disappear? Derek White disappeared. My guy, Peyton Pritchard, disappeared. Al Horford disappeared. He actually had some moments in game six, but he disappeared for a lot of this series. Um, and there are other Marcus Smart, you know, pretty rough series all around for Marcus mm-hmm. Smart, especially by the end of it. All these guys are disappearing and it's not happening by accident when you're having across the board offensive struggles like the Celtics did, especially in the fourth quarter when teams are locked in. That's a product of the other team's defense. It's not just because you're goofily throwing the ball all over the court. It's because the other teams in your jersey, in your head, messing with you. And that's what happened. I'm really glad you started that the way you did, because I think a lot of people were looking at this as a fun matchup of best player versus a better team. And let's see if Steph can pull off a miracle here. But it is important to recognize that by the end of this series, the Warriors were just the better team. They were smarter. They were tougher. They were not breaking down the way the Celtics were. And they had more depth. They had more weapons to play with. Can you be the best team in a series uh, if Steph Curry's on the other side and you can't walk and chew gum at the same time in the fourth (laughs) quarter? I mean, you can't. You just cannot be the better team. I'm sorry. Let me read you their bench numbers from game six. Derek White, 16 minutes, a negative 26 plus minus. Peyton Pritchard. That's numbers. Eight minutes, (laughs) negative 20 plus minus Grant Williams, 
16 minutes, negative 18 plus minus. And that's it. Those are the only guys they played. And so if that's what you're getting from your bench, they also played, they emptied the bench in garbage time to give the starters a standing ovation. I'm happy for the Celtics that they, they weren't actively booed off the floor in their final home game of the season. Well, they were uh, booed at times, Yeah, I, and, you know, it, it was rough. I, the Celtics fans I have in my life are so ready to have this team out of their lives. And I'm happy for them today that they don't have to watch another game with that Celtics offense. But I think to your larger point, the the Celtics were just really, really thin. And so if their stars were wearing down, well, that's sort of what happens when you have to play guys like 45 minutes a game, 46 minutes a game, deep into the playoffs, and you're going to six or seven games. Like It helps to have depth in those spots. And the Warriors had depth. Gary Payton the second was awesome. Man, and he was. Jordan Poole well, came up big. Like yeah, they were just better. Also Wiggins. Yeah, I think, you know, coming into the series, I had cast him as the X Factor for a lot of his playoffs. I had referred to him as the X Factor for Golden State. Usually when I do these X Factor things, or so I, I occasionally do a column most years, like, you know, guys who are under the microscope for the playoffs. When I'm writing those columns in the back of my mind, like the voice in my head is saying, I don't believe these guys at all. This is not going to go. It's like Zach Levine. You know, I'll put Mm -hmm. him on that list because I know he's not going to be able to do anything in the playoffs. You know, DeMar DeRozan, (laughs) put him on that list. Julius Randle, put him on that list. Like, it's just such an easy content thing, right? Of just like picking apart and, you know, certain fan bases, favorite players and just, you know, betting against them, right? Now, Wiggins, it was a little bit of a different story because he's not, you know, a number one, number two type guy for them, right? coming into the playoffs, Mm -hmm. but I knew they were going to need him just because you have to have quality wing play to win a title. And when you're looking at who's coming out of the East, potentially, you know, at the time we're thinking like Middleton, right. Or maybe Jimmy Butler. Um, Certainly it wasn't going to be Philadelphia, but obviously it could have been Tatum or or Jalen Brown. Like you had to have somebody step up. Now I don't want this to get confused. Tatum is still a better player in a vacuum than Wiggins. If you switched him, this series, um, you know, that's a real question, though. And in terms of who played better in this particular series, Andrew Wiggins played better. Now, ultimately, did he have more help? Was he in a more productive environment? Did he have better, like, ball handlers to set him up? Was he in, you know, more uh, favorable spots? If you put Tatum on the Warriors in place of Wiggins, uh, you know, are the Warriors an even bigger machine? Yeah, you could argue that because Tatum's not getting tired out and he's just feasting <laughs> on open looks. That's fine. Andrew Wiggins in this series outplayed Jason Tatum. He did. The fact that you're like really playing out the hypothetical is itself disrespectful to Jason Tatum. You have to clarify that, yeah, if you swap them, Jason Tatum might be a little more valuable for the Warriors. I, I don't think it's a conversation that Andrew Wiggins had a much easier job than Jason but he also Tatum had a much series. better series than Jason Tatum. He did have a much better series. Yeah, and, that, and that's what I was trying to say. I, I, I was actually trying not to be disrespectful <laughs> by know, doing that. I, know. I was trying to kind of clarify. But look, the bottom line is I have to do that when Jason Tatum has no lift at all going into the basket for like the final four games of this series, when he's subsisting completely on his three-point shot, when he can't get any points going to the basket Um, whatsoever, mid-range, absolutely nothing. When he's committing just these absolutely insane turnovers, 
dude, I could power rank his turnovers again from games five and game six, and it would be great content, man. I don't know. I don't think we have that much time on this show. Uh, Misha, this is our second Misha email, said, all caps, where were you during the Andrew Wiggins game? The children will ask. And yes, game five, Wiggins came up huge. Klay Thompson also came up huge in game five. That was sort of overshadowed by Wiggins. He, he was. He played great, and I thought he had some key moments in Game 4, too. Um, he didn't have the best box scores across this entire series, but Clay did his part, especially from a minutes load standpoint. Like I didn't think he was going to be able to play this much in the postseason as he did throughout this run. And it's just amazing, off of two major injuries, that he would be able to hold up that well, even though he's getting burned at times defensively earlier in the playoffs, even though his shot wasn't really always there. Mm-hmm. He gave them great minutes. But let me ask you on this Wiggins thing from Game 5. Because we didn't podcast after game five, and we didn't really talk that much after game five. I'm not in, like, you know, you weren't ignoring me. I'm just, you know, <laughs> yeah. I was on a cross-country flight and dealing with all sorts of nonsense, right? Um, mm-hmm. Did you feel like that Wiggins' performance in game five was like a signifier that Golden State had figured out Boston? Or did you feel like it was sort of an anomaly? Because I'll be honest, coming in uh, to the game tonight, I mean, you know how, like, beside myself I was about Steph Curry's possible injury after game three I mean I threw in the towel did the full reverse (laughs) jinx I mean all of it right yeah but coming into game six after watching game five in particular watching Wiggins's performance and how well Golden State played with with uh, Steph not really um, shooting the basketball very well I thought Golden State was going to win game six coming in tonight and I was kind of surprised that Boston was favored by like three and a half or four points in that game I just didn't really get it I felt like Wiggins is, you know, I don't want to call it dominance, but Wiggins is edge over Tatum in game five and how that fourth quarter played out. To me, it was just like a massive red flag. It's like, look, this team, they're cooked. I mean, I don't think they're going to quit, but they just don't have enough to be able to get it done against the Warriors. Did you feel the same way or did you feel like, oh, Wiggins just kind of got lucky, had the night of his life and you know, there's still a lot of basketball left to be played because I heard so many other commentators saying, oh, this is definitely going back to Golden State for game seven. I was like, I don't think so. I'm, I'm looking at flights. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a couple different responses. I certainly looked at game six as mostly a toss up. And part of that was how great the Warriors had looked. And part of it was just how broken the Celtics looked down the stretch in game five and even down the stretch in game four. Like they just really seem to be short circuiting in real time. And it's hard to feel confident about any team that that does that multiple games in a row. Uh, That's a question I had for you. This is sorry. This is so out of left field. I don't know the answer. mm -hmm. When was the last time we saw a team in the finals play this bad in the fourth quarter? Can you remember it? Like, honestly, um, like the Cavs, they always had LeBron to do something. You know what I mean? Um, even the Miami Heat, like Jimmy Butler is going toe to toe with LeBron in a lot of those games. You know, like they're they're still kind of grinding away, finding a way to do it. Um, I don't know, man. Like it's I think it's more than a decade, maybe longer that I, we've I, seen a team struggle that badly on fourth quarter offense. I remember hating the way the Thunder were closing games in the Heat series. They were also starting Perkins despite 
all sorts of evidence <laughs> that that was going to be a disaster. Despite every blogger on the internet in 2012 letting Scott Brooks know that he was making a critical error. Oh my God. That was just really, really upsetting for a lot of different reasons. So uh, that would be my nomination. Also a young team. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think there's really a parallel to what we just saw from the Celtics. But I want to answer your Wiggins question because... I don't think that it was really about Wiggins in game five. Like he showed up, he hit shots, he had some good cuts to the rim. All of it was impressive, but still his life is so much easier because of how much attention Steph Curry commands. And I think if you put Wiggins on 29 other teams, he would not have had the success that he's had over the past two years. Right, and, but and he still blew away your expectations, right? I mean, he did. Like, yeah, I, I just wait, I, I don't look at Andrew Wiggins as some like dramatically changed player. I just think everybody who plays with Steph has a much easier road. And um, well, but but go back to the Barnes example, right? I mean, remember Harrison Barnes just breaking three pointer after three pointer after three pointer, yeah. from the corner, and you're like, come on, dude, what are you doing? And like Barnes was good defensively, but I thought Wiggins against Tatum made that guy work. He he wore him out. He just flat out wore him out. And you're right. There's a lot of contextual reasons why Golden State is able to kind of like force Tatum to tire before, you know, their guys tire. But some of it is just Wiggins has always been an 82 game player in terms of, you know, never missing time. He's always mm-hmm. had an unbelievable ability to kind of play huge minutes. Remember Tibbs used to play him 40, 42 minutes earlier in his career I just, I mean, I can't say enough about it. I will stop short of even <laughs> hinting that he should have gotten a vote for finals MVP. But, you know, as a guy who's been watching Andrew Wiggins since he was 14 years old in high school mm-hmm. and riding that roller coaster in terms of how dark it got in certain years and and even just what it looked like in his first year in Golden State, I, I get what you're saying about the Steph Halo effect. But, man, this guy's got six different halos on, man. Totally, I mean, totally. Look, Wiggins deserves credit. I just saw some people who were saying some out-of-pocket things about Andrew Wiggins after Game 5. Like, he's still Andrew Wiggins to me. I enjoy Andrew Wiggins succeeding on this stage, and I think his success is pretty directly correlated to Draymond and Steph getting him easy looks all game long. Uh, but he had to hit those, and you're right, Harrison Barnes kind of wilted in the same moments. And so good job, Wiggins. You've got that on Harrison Barnes. I feel like the benchmark coming in was like, if Wiggins can be closer to Kevin Durant than Harrison Barnes, the Warriors <laughs> are going to be a, a huge problem, right? And I think if you put him on the spectrum, he was slightly closer to Kevin Durant than he was to Harrison Barnes. Now, obviously, Kevin Durant was way, 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 way better in that particular role Mm. Um, than Andrew Wiggins, but boy, did he come through. And I know another comparison point, you know, last year, not to belabor this point, but Kelly Oubre, right? I mean, they had kind of hopes, hey, plug this guy into to Clay's role. Is he going to be able to figure out the offense? Maybe he can give you a little bit of scoring. He's got some athleticism. He's a little bit of a talent. Now, of course, you're not going to expect as much from him um, as you do from Wiggins. And at that point, you're probably expecting maybe more from him than Jordan Poole if you rewind to the start of last year. But I just I think that the players who get it and who really buy in, they can really get elevated by stuff a lot. But not every single last guy can do it. And so, again, I give Wiggins credit for 
embracing his role, and then just playing it to the maximum of his ability. And I also feel like out-of-body experience here for the last two weeks. Like, it's it's crazy what he did here in this series. Well, and look, you did call it on the way into this series. Andrew Wiggins is the X Factor. And I responded to that take by saying, actually, I think Jordan Poole is like the even bigger X Factor for this team. Both of them were X Factors, and both of them came up big in games four, five, and six. And I don't know that the Warriors would have won each of those games without Wiggins and Poole deciding to show up and make a real impact on the series, particularly on Poole's side. Wiggins played six games of really solid defense and was fairly reliable on offense. Poole was totally up and down uh, throughout, yeah. but he showed well, up when at he the hit end. Those- I mean, the two deep three-pointers, you know, at the end of third quarters, like those are almost as big as a third-quarter shot can get, right? Just backbreakers for Boston. I think the other X X factor who you mentioned earlier on this episode, Gary Payton the second man. Um, Another guy where, you know, what a postseason run for him where it's kind of all coming together. He gets injured. They throw the three-day-long fit at his expense. I mean, it's going to be a career-ending. He's never going to get a contract again. I mean, they're so upset about Gary Payton's injury, right? Fast forward a month, and there he is locking up guys left and right down the stretch of this series, you know, forcing so many turnovers, so many tough decisions from Boston's wing players. And he's one of the smallest guys on the court. He's hitting the offensive glass at times. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's getting a, a nice dunk there, you know, late in that game, but also just kind of scrounging up points around the hoop. Um, you know, he was he was really big for them. But this kind of goes back to this conversation about who had the better team. When all of Golden State's role players are succeeding, right? Looney, another one who had a great series, right? Yep. Um, he had some foul trouble along the way, but another great series. And all of Boston's role players are call, uh, kind of f- uh, fading um, mm-hmm. as the series unfolds. I think, first of all, it validates that Steph was the only MVP-level player in this series. He makes his teammates better in a way that a guy like Tatum or even Jalen Brown, they just do not make their teammates better in the same way. And then I think it just also validates this idea that, you know, surprise, surprise, the prognosticators were wrong and Golden State was actually a deeper team, Uh, you know, and they may not be as impressive on paper, but paper doesn't matter, Andrew. (laughs) Um, Hey, one last take uh, real quick as we're kind of writing things. Um, You know, you made the, the case earlier in this series that, you know, size and athleticism still matters in playoff basketball. It's absolutely true. We see it every single year. You had a lot of great um, examples, whether it's Giannis or, um, you know, Anthony Davis in these last couple of postseasons where that's been game changing. However, I thought that the end of this series validated my philosophy, which you hate, which is the touchy-feely philosophy, oh, Andrew. <laughs> you know I love players with touch. You know I love players with feel. You know I love those guys so much that I'm even willing to say I like the touchy-feely guys, which for some reason makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Steph Curry's touch, ball-handling ability, ability to you know feel in terms of how to handle double teams, traps, unbelievable. Draymond Green, decision-making, the touch on his passes, his vision, unbelievable. Wiggins is touch and feel in terms of when to pick his spots, when to go to the mid-range, how to get to his favorite spots on the court was excellent. You go right down the list of Golden State Warriors players' pool when he's setting up for those three. Now, his touch is not completely dialed in. This guy throws up (laughs) some crazy shots that drive me nuts, Andrew, but he had some big shots too, right? Oh, yeah. Um, 
I mean, some big lucky shots too. <laughs> like at, <laughs> at the end of the third quarter in game five, that basically won them the game because I think that shot demoralized the Celtics after they had clawed back to take the lead and whatnot, and they couldn't score at the end of the third quarter, gave Jordan Poole an opportunity to hit that running 40-footer. But um, it's not to take anything away from Poole because he was awful to start the series and, and did play pretty well and, and was playable and able to stay on the court and hang over the final few games. And that was a big deal for Golden State. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of guys with touch and feel from Golden State side. On Boston side, the only guy you can really say who has touch and feel is your guy, Easy Al Horford. You know? mm. And he was real come and go in this series. Some... <laughs> Uh, you know, some games he looked great. Other games, you know, people were talking about, hey, should they cut his minutes? Should they, you know, like go smaller? Should they maybe even bench him? You know, I heard some people looking at lineup data saying, you know, Horford looks like a little bit of a weak link. Tatum, no touch, no feel. Jalen Brown, no touch, no feel. The bench guys, I mean, Derek White, maybe for one or two games, right? You you could put him in that touch and feel category. But all these other guys, I mean, it's like they're dribbling with bricks on their hands, right? And they've got <laughs> blinders. They're looking at the parquet floor instead of seeing the bigger picture, man. Um, I just thought it was a real validation for touchy-feely basketball. Oh, my God. You know, not to go full Lee Corso here, but you at the top of the show saying that the Red Lobster jokes are the corniest thing you've ever said on the podcast. I have to say, not so fast, my friend, because it's a crowded field of <laughs> corny things that you've said on the podcast. We would need like a couple episodes to rank them all. Touchy Feelies is right up there, though. That belongs in the top 10 of Gulliver corniness. Um can I read you my favorite warrior stat line before we shift to the Celtics disaster? Please. Or you're just reading box scores now. You're a big stat guy. Six points. Two of three from the field. Two of three from three. Otto Porter Jr., Ben. <laughs> 29 years old. An NBA champion. What a world. They ended up relying more on Gary Payton II once they started actually winning these games. But I don't give a shit. Otto Porter got his ring. I am going to sleep happy tonight. Well, see, this is the problem with Bradley Beal and your Washington Wizards, right? Like, if he had gone to the finals and supported Otto Porter and made a much bigger <laughs> deal about that, his former teammate finally on the grandest stage, yep. maybe some good karma would kind of uh, spill over to the Wizards. Instead, he goes to support his fellow St. Louis guy, Jason Tatum. And I understand that. I mean, it sounds like they are really like legitimately close friends. But that was right there, right along with the Red Lobster, man. The series ended <laughs> in that moment, didn't it? I mean, wasn't that the, the situation where the whole thing turned? Yeah, um, it's not great. I mean, look, John Wall was also in the building. I don't think oh. either one of them acknowledged Otto Porter during game four of the Celtics series, but um, it is what it is. Otto, look, if if any of those three guys, I, if John Wall ever gets a ring, I'll be pretty emotional, but I'm happy that what, Otto what got a ring, ring before Beal. <laughs> Beal is on my list right now. I, I need him on another team by next season. Like he's going to Ben Bridge Jewelers or what kind of ring are you talking about? <laughs> Look, <laughs> anything is possible. Ring. The no. Kyrie for Wall idea has been floated by several reputable sources. And it's always mentioned <laughs> as like a crazy long shot, but okay. there's hope. I would love to see Wall finally play with KD. Should have happened in DC like seven years ago, but maybe it'll happen in Brooklyn at some point. 
Okay. First of all, I got to say it's reputable. Otherwise, we're going to get crushed in the emails. <laughs> okay, thanks. So I'm going I'm to cover you on that one. Second of all, you don't get a ring for winning playing games, man. If that's the master plan for the Brooklyn Nets, I, I'm, I'm out. Um, while you're giving these great Golden State Warriors stats, can I give you um, uh, my kind of like top-down, you know, 30,000-foot uh, stat here on the Golden State Warriors? To Please me, it's do. nuts. If you're talking about the Golden State Warriors under Steve Kerr, okay, so since that 2014-2015 title run, right, their postseason record across the six postseason runs, obviously there was two years they didn't make the playoffs, right? Their postseason record goes 16-5, and 15-9, and 16-1, and 16-5, and 14-8, and eight, 16 and six. That's a grand total of 93 and 34 Mm. in the playoffs. They've won 73% of their playoff games under Steve Kerr. And if you want to go series record in terms of like, what's their record across all the series, they are 22 and two in playoff series since 2015, bro. That is wild. You know, and like when we're caught up in it, I remember feeling this in 2017 of just like watching that team go 16 and one and every, and I just feeling like everybody took it for granted and everybody else taking it for granted. It was like making me feel like I was starting to take it for granted. And it really rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of made me like nauseous a little bit. And when you step back and listen to Steve Kerr, even Joe Lake of Steph Curry, talk about how meaningful this title was because of everything they didn't have accomplished here over the last couple of years and all the injuries and the roster churn and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's just a reminder that like that is an insane run of consistent excellence and it's not guaranteed. They did not have to get back to this particular stage and they did. And they performed at a 16 and six clip, which was, you know, comparable to what their run was almost in 2018. That's wild, man. It is pretty incredible. And before we shift to the Celtics, I have one unlikely hero of this Warriors story that I want to run by you. What do you think about a round of applause for D'Angelo Russell in the midst of this Warriors celebration? Because... When you Wait, go back, to- is this like a Dennis Schroeder round of applause? You know, like they trade him and Boston takes off. I mean, is that what you're getting at? Look, it's also a round of applause for Kevin Durant because Kevin Durant was such a weirdo that offseason that he was demanding the Nets put something valuable in a sign and trade for him because he didn't want his ego to take a hit or something like there's a lot of weirdness around how D'Angelo Russell ended up part of a sign and trade and ended up on the Warriors. But I will say that when you and I, after the, the Raptors loss, we were podcasting in that random Oakland hotel and both of us were a little bit somber about the future of the Warriors. Oh, I think I said dynasty over. Yeah, it it felt like Dynasty over. And one of the reasons it felt that way was because we all assumed they were going to lose Kevin Durant for absolutely nothing. And they were were coming back with just no KD next year, no replacement. It was going to be Steph and Alonzo McKinney or whatever. And um, to get D'Angelo Russell and get like a max salary slot, it allowed them to go get Wiggins. It was a a huge coup, even at the time. Um, And in retrospect, when you look at the way this team came together, none of it happens if they aren't able to 
acquire D'Lo by that sleight of hand and then later trick the Timberwolves <laughs> into trading for him. Um, but it, it's it's why the Warriors are champions tonight. So I, I had to mention one of my guys, not currently a member of Team Sharp, but he had a good run there for a few years. Well, you know, I, I've told you before, like this whole idea uh, among executives, they're always trying to prey on the new guy. You know, that happened to Joe Cronin and the Blazers. Mm-hmm. Um, when he got the job, you know, sort of Neil O'Shea's out midseason deadline, you've got all the Sharks, you know, the, the Clippers front office circling the Blazers, trying to like pick off Norman Powell and Robert Covington. I mean, this is like an age old tradition in the NBA. And sure enough, Bob Myers and the Warriors, you know, ultra, ultra aggressive front office and ownership group. I think they saw Gerson Rosas coming from a mile away. You know, they knew exactly what situation he was in. He was desperate to have a new uh, point guard, a new playmaker. He really wanted Russell in particular because of that relationship with Carl Anthony Towns. And they set it up beautifully. They just kind of swagger jacked Russell that summer right out from Gerson Rosas's hands and then waited four months. I mean, the funniest part about that whole saga, Andrew, was when they were lying through their teeth about what a great fit they thought Steph and Russell <laughs> were. They were they were playing that card for three months. And I remember you and I, or at least I consistently, you might have given Russell a little bit of a chance, but once you saw it, you were out. The yeah. whole way through, I was like, this will never work. He's, you know, I'm, I've been pretty anti-Russell the whole way. I was like, this is not a fit. It's going to be a disaster. They're definitely going to trade him. I remember feeling that the whole time. And they just lied and lied and lied. And then sure enough, they cashed in uh, with a great trade, um, you know, that, you know, like you mentioned, kind of catapulted them into this particular spot. Dude, they they was... don't win this title without Russell and without Wiggins. They don't. They yeah, really do not. Exactly. So I had to mention it. And you mentioned the lies. <laughs> like Literally, they were just <laughs> lying to our face for four months. Um, the second Russell was traded, I started hearing from Warriors people about how much Kerr and Draymond despised him behind the scenes and were so happy to see him go. So it's a good thing Kerr himself was not negotiating that trade because he would have given Russell up to anybody who wanted him. You remember earlier how I was talking about how Draymond and Steph and and Clay are all like 100 out of 100 on the competitiveness factor? Mm-hmm. Um, Russell has a different numbered ranking. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's less than 100. Hey, I, I think we want to shift gears here pretty soon to talking about the Celtics. Can I set that up with kind of a heater question Oof. that has kind of been bouncing around my head a little bit, and I don't know if I'm fully serious or half serious or exactly how I feel, but who gave the Warriors a tougher time? Oh, the Boston Celtics. <laughs> you texted me this, I, and I was upset about it. I'll let you finish the question. Who gave the Warriors a tougher time? The Boston Celtics or the Memphis Grizzlies? Now, keep in mind, the Grizzlies were able to push the Warriors into the fourth quarter multiple times. They were able to pull out a very entertaining um, you know, uh, last-second victory thanks to John Morant. They were able to pull off the whoop-that-trick game where they blew the Warriors out by far more than the Celtics blew out the Warriors in Game 1 of the Finals. And it was just a much more, uh, you know, like competent performance by their young guys. They We were never sitting there saying, like, can John Morant dribble the basketball? Yeah, John Morant can dribble the basketball. <laughs> we were worried about Desmond Bain's health there for a while. We were really annoyed about Jaron Jackson Jr. and the foul trouble, and he looked sort of young. 
Um, I'm just curious. I mean, both series went six games. They're the only uh, series that went six games for Golden State. Mm-hmm. Um, but Golden State was able to close Boston out on the road, something they couldn't do in Memphis. So I'm curious. Who gave the Warriors oh more problems? Ben Boston Gallimer. I'm just asking Memphis. questions. Yeah. Here's the deal, okay? The games the Grizzlies won in that series were pretty shaky, particularly at the beginning. Game two, like there was a flop down the stretch. It easily could have gone Golden State's way, like a shaky call in the final minute there to help seal it for Memphis. The bottom line is when the Celtics were beating the Warriors, it was like an oh shit moment. And probably even for some of the people on the Warriors, they were like, wow, I'm not sure we have it this time. And they never thought that against the Grizzlies. As as fun as the Grizzlies run was, as great as Ja Morant was at points, as great as the, the collective was once Ja went out. Like it was a lot of fun watching those guys battle. But I don't think the the Warriors were ever really worried during that series. Whereas I think there was some real concern uh, against this Boston team until Boston just completely fell apart. But even so, the Celtics ceiling is higher and they put some real fear into the Warriors. No, that's kind of what I expected guys like you, you know, Boston guys like you to say, (laughs) um, kind of save face a little bit. So let me ask you, fully healthy Grizzlies versus fully healthy Celtics in the finals. What's the result? Well, are they playing today? Because if if so, I'm taking anybody over the current version of the Celtics. Marcus <laughs> Smart, God only knows what's wrong with him. I'm sure he's got like four different injuries right now. Robert Williams the third, God only knows what they've injected into him over the last week or two. I hope he comes back healthy. I hope he has a restful three months here. He's earned it. Uh, but well, none of these guys are ready right now for a seven-game series. I hope Robert Williams has a 10-year career, I'll tell you that. Because, I mean, the stories about all this fluid draining out of his knees and how much he rushed back out of surgery and all this stuff – I really hope this is a guy who is just kind of, you know, able just to magically put the injury issues behind him. You know, we've seen a few guys over the years do that. I really hope this is not like something that we look back on sort of like with Brandon Roy and say, yeah, he was, you know, kind of never the same guy from a consistency standpoint, um, you know, going forward because it just sounded dire, man, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and what he's been going through and. And he was, look, he was the most consistent member of the Celtics through all of these games. Wait, you think <laughs> was more than Jalen? Best player. Yeah. Jalen, you know, his great games obscure some of the games where he's just like spraying the ball all over the floor and can't hit a shot and is overly reliant on the three. Like the bad Jalen games stick with me more than it seems like they do with the general public. Everybody is going to remember he had 34 tonight and was pretty great and was one of the few Celtics who didn't look scared of this Warriors team, which was impressive. Um, uh, maybe more of a shot at his teammates than like impressive for Jalen Brown. But like he showed up. I just I look at Time Lord as the guy who sort of dictated the shape of the series when it was going Boston's way and, and did give them a chance. Um, but it wasn't enough, obviously. Yeah, um, I think I would probably put Jalen one, but you've got a case for Robert Williams as number two. I, I don't 
personally know what to do with Jason Tatum. I want to read you this quote from Steve Kerr. He says, I've said it many times. Steph reminds me of Tim Duncan. From a humanity standpoint, from a talent standpoint, humility, confidence, it's a wonderful combination that makes everybody want to win for him. Without him, none of this happens. To me, this title is his crowning achievement. I want to home in on the the part about everyone wanting to win for him. And you mm-hmm. mentioned how much hate I was getting from my Tatum takes over these last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, like, you know, you were pushing back pretty heavy. I'm not going to forget that, you know, in terms of how you were calling him an MVP or, oh, you're oh slow now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he could be an MVP. You know, you were kind You've of You've really around. latched onto that and you recognize how crazy it drives me. And I, I applaud you for your consistency. Every time we talk about Tatum, you make well, it sound like I was predicting that he would yeah. be an MVP one day. I'm merely reflecting what the true Tatum believers have been putting out into the world for the last three years. Well, as crazy as what I'm saying drives you, that's how crazy MVP talk with Tatum <laughs> drives me. Because I, I want you to say, would Ime Udoka ever be able to say those kinds of things about Jason Tatum? Right now, at this stage of his career, from a humanity standpoint, talent standpoint, humility, confidence, it's a wonderful combination that makes everyone want to win for him. Mm-hmm. I just don't see it. I mean, the Celtics at their worst moments, they play like strangers on offense. That's been the case for the last three or four years. They seem like they can kind of coexist at their best moments. The ball moves. They do the driving kick stuff. It all kind of works out. But this is not everybody trying to win for Tatum. This is not him like inspiring everyone around him and having this great halo effect like you described with Steph. It's just two completely different classes of players. And I just, I mean, this is going to sound like I told you so, whatever else. I just really hope that the Tatum fans who were so upset about what I said over the last week internalize the right lessons from these final three games. Tatum is not on that level yet. He can potentially get there. He's going to have to get a lot better at reading defenses. He's going to have to get a lot better and finishing around the basket. He's going to need to do those things while not letting anything slide on the defensive end. He's going to have to become a more vocal leader. He's going to have to get better control of his emotions and not go after the referees and have this persecution complex when he doesn't get calls. He's going to have to understand how to draw contact better. This is a long list of things that Jason Tatum needs to improve on if he's going to become an MVP level player. I'm not trying to say this to hurt your feelings, Tatum's fans, and, you know, get you all in your feelings. And, like, you know, it's a really tough moment. I saw a lot of sad, you know, I mean, you know, green makeup streaking down people's cheeks Can tonight. I just say, don't even worry about speaking to the Tatum believers and maybe even speaking to Celtics fans generally. Like, if I were a Celtics fan, I would take a long break from NBA podcasts after the end of these no. finals. I no, you're can't never imagine get any of them no. are listening to this show right Look, now. You're never going to get better if you do that. In the toughest moments, <laughs> oh, that's... Coach Golliver, here we go. That's when you have to look in the mirror. And I'm dead serious, man. Like, people think I'm just out here trying to roast players for no reason, right? I mean, you were laughing at me last year about Booker's rebounding. Again, I point to Andrew Wiggins' rebounding in games... Four and five, critical turning point of this series. This guy is hitting the glass like crazy for a guard. It matters so much in small ball lineups. These are all just indisputable facts based on what we just watched over the last three games in terms of areas that Jason Tatum needs to improve. 
That would be true for any two, three, or four you know, position type player. If they had those many holes in their games, we would all recoil and gag at the idea that these guys are supposed to be in an MVP level conversation, okay? Mm-hmm. doesn't mean he's not an all-NBA guy. It doesn't mean he's not an all-star, perennial all-star guy. But when 12 time becomes 12 turnover, it's a big problem. <laughs> and don't shoot the messenger. That's my point. Okay, well, that's very fair. I have a couple different responses. First of all, if you're going to invoke the Wiggins-Booker thing, Wiggins is four inches taller than Devin Booker and has been a horrible rebounder his entire career until the last couple of games he has been awful on that end so he does get credit for showing up in the finals but he basically plays a different position than Devin Booker so I don't really care about that if Booker rebounded like Wiggins in last year's finals the Suns might win that it's true if Booker were 6'8 he would be Kobe and the Suns may have several titles at this point unfortunately that's not how he's built but speaking of all-time greats... Well, it's a greats. weakness. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> your hero isn't perfect. That's all I'm trying to say. But you're, you're always telling me, oh, we're basketball critics out here. I think I'm the one who's bringing the legit criticism, okay? I'm telling you, these guys have weaknesses. While everybody else wants to fly the pamphlet flag and say Tatum's going to be oh, an MVP, God. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> Here's what I'll say on the Tatum side in response to what you said. So if you recall, during the Mavs Warriors series, we were going back and forth about Luca at one point, and and I was saying, well, like Steph makes all of his teammates better. Why is it unfair to expect Luca to have a similar impact on some of the guys he's playing with? And I'm not sure you totally agreed or 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 what your response was in that moment. But the reason I think it's fair to compare Steph and Luca is because that's what a lot of people expect Luca to be long term. Like they expect him to have, if not a top 10 all time career, like a top 25 all time career, top 30. Like that's what the hype has been. So it's not a problem to me to compare Luca to Steph as he's right. growing here. Okay. Well, here's a, here's a more apt comparison Luca versus Tatum. They're both young developing stars. Tatum's obviously a better defensive player. But when you're looking at making teammates better, when you're looking at vision, when you're looking at touchy-feely, when you're looking at fourth quarter play, (laughs) when you're looking at clutch shot making, when you're looking at shot creation, when you're looking at ability to finish, it's not even close. Luka was so much better in the Western Conference Finals against the same Golden State team that concentrated even more defensive attention on Luka than they did against Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum melted down anytime two guys were within three feet of him, and Luca was handing tra- handling traps for you know a good chunk of that series and finding open teammates with a supporting cast that was much weaker than Jason Tatum's supporting cast. And so I sure. understand we want Luca to get to Steph's level. I want Tatum to get to Luca's level. Well, what I'm saying is that comparing Tatum's impact on this other Celtics to Steph's impact on the other Warriors. I don't think that's fair in large part because Steph is one of the 10 greatest players of all time. And I don't put Tatum in that category right. at all. Well, like future again, Hall of Famer, maybe? I, I understand. I I'm not le- he's, a, he's a future Hall of Famer, okay? Um, I'm not lecturing you here. I'm lecturing the people who were so upset at me about the negative things that I'm saying. It's like, look, 
I understand he's had some really good moments in this postseason. The game winner against Brooklyn, 46 against uh, Giannis, incredible performance, closed out the Miami Heat down the stretch of that series. He did a lot of things to get a lot of people really, really excited. I'm glad mm-hmm. it sounds like you're not quite in that category. It's just the truth is somewhere in the middle. And the gap between the best players in this series is what determined this series. Steph Curry wiped the parquet floor with Jason Tatum. Yeah, and that's an aspect of the series. It got more out of hand as the series unfolded, and it's an aspect of all of this that will be really interesting to continue to study as the days pass because I don't know what the hell happened to Jason Tatum. I mean, like, here's a tweet from True Hoop after Game 5. With with seven minutes left in the third quarter, the Celtics' Jason Tatum had 22 points on 13 shots and Boston had a lead. Then Tatum's last eight shots. Miss, air ball, air ball, miss, air ball, miss, made three, air ball. And then in game six, he was six of 18 from the field, 13 points, all kinds of just excruciating moments in traffic where he's giving up the ball, he's missing point blank looks in the mid range. I mean, he was shockingly bad. He didn't have his legs. I mean, so he got blown by Jordan Poole one time, and I was like, wow, that's not the Jason Tatum I know, you know. Um, I was going to say that's not the Jason Tatum I love, but, you know, better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that guy. But he's I'm, getting blown by Poole on one end. He's not finishing above the rim. I mean, we all, all of our jaws dropped on press row when he actually had that dunk in game six because he hasn't been playing above the rim at all. He's constantly getting his uh, shots tossed into the baseline, you know, guys blocking his shots because he's just not really getting lift off the ground on those layups and those drives. And so, you know, Ime was was arguing after game five, it could be fatigue in part because of how many, you know, huge minutes he was playing Tatum um, down the stretch of this series. And it was just clear he could not handle that workload physically. Like he just could not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, six for 18 um, in game six, five turnovers. I mean, that's just rough. And you know, as much as I might be criticizing Jason Tatum, that's not who he is. You know, I mean, these are some of his worst nights we've seen throughout his playoff career, ever since he's kind of ascended to being like an all-star level player. Yeah. I can't remember a lot of worse performances. I mean, you're reading that tweet. I'm thinking, do I need to do power rank his airballs? Like, which one was the worst? <laughs> it, it it was rough to experience in real time. I was watching the game with Alice and somewhere along the line, the announcers started talking about Tatum's struggles, and that struck a chord with Alice. So she was rooting for Tatum right as the wheels came off in the fourth quarter and living through air ball after air ball after well, air ball. Like it really scarred her. Well, so that raises a question here because, I mean, Alice hopping on a bandwagon as it's sinking, right? I mean, people were comparing me to the Titanic captain. Guess what? My ship's floating. I'm going through the Boston <laughs> Harbor, Edwards, Andrew. I'm doing right. just great. Meanwhile, Celtics at the bottom of the harbor. Um, but what kind of a fan is she that she would adopt Tatum at that particular moment? Is this like a pure sympathy thing? Is she just kind of trying to zag like you some, sometimes try to zag, you know, going <laughs> against the grain? Like wh- what was inspiring those emotions? No, because no, no, no. My, my text to you was like, you got to protect your wife. Isn't that what I said? Like, don't yeah. let her do this. You got to step in and like, you know. Uh, make sure she's not going to get her feelings hurt here. So where was it coming from? 
I was asleep at the wheel. I, I was not expecting Tatum to have like the worst fourth quarter of his life in game four or game five. Uh, where was it coming from? It was fully sympathy rooting from Alice. And she was just like, come on, this guy's got to turn it around sometime. And he didn't. <laughs> and he didn't in game six either. And I hate to laugh, but it's just sort of like, whoa, I can't believe that really happened. I can't believe that Celtics best player was maybe their, if you're being really generous, their third best player, but I don't even know if he was their third best player in most of these games. Um, And it's just pretty shocking. It's a watershed moment for his career, and it'll be really interesting to see how he responds because on the one hand, I think the most likely scenario is that Tatum is more of a Paul George than a Kawhi Leonard. And that was exposed in this series. And it might be better if we all recalibrate our Tatum expectations going forward. But I don't know. So the Paul George cop is the one I've used the whole way through um, in large part because they're so three point dependent because they have similar length and builds and because they're both really good two way players and because they're not really natural playmakers for their teammates, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's the right comp. I would stick with it. And I think in the right situation, if you have a really deep, physical, number one ranked defense, I think Boston could win a title at some point over the next two or three years. It's not impossible. Um, but Tatum is going to have to play a lot better. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had that uh, we had that question on the last episode. So is he going to be the worst best player on a title team? Now, obviously, that ship has sailed, right? Actually, that ship has sank, I should say. <laughs> um, but Captain uh, Edwards, there you go. If we're saying the worst best player on a finals team, right? So you're potentially losing. Again, I think you're going back 20 years. LeBron was better in 2011 than Tatum was in this particular series, right? I mean, mm-hmm. definitely. Steph was better when they lost to the Raptors. You know, Steph was better when they lost to the Cavaliers in 2016. Like, I'm just struggling. I mean, is it is it Dwight Howard in the 2009 finals, right? I mean, I don't remember him being, like, particularly horrible. I mean, certainly not to the point where it's, like, nothing but air balls and, like, you know, podcast material. Oh We've been making fun of Tatum for hours in this particular series. You know what I mean? So I think you're going back a really, really long way. And – I mean, this winds up being a crossroads moment for Mr. 12 time. It really does. Yeah. You know, he loves the Kobe Bryant comparison. Everybody remembers Kobe's air balls in Utah when he was really young, right? And that's like something that he's referenced as like, I took that moment and realized that I needed to get better as a player. Like, I can't go out there and like kind of embarrass myself like that again. I will be ready the next time I get a chance. I'll be a different person was basically Kobe's mantra, right? Mm-hmm. Tatum is older. He's more established. He's closer to his ceiling by far than Kobe was in that particular moment. But he needs to take the right lessons from this series. You know, going back and spending the entire summer in the gym doing one on zero jab step work and all that kind of stuff is not what he needs to be doing. This guy really needs to hit the books in terms of how to read defenses, how to handle double teams, how to handle traps. And to just how to keep your head up and understand to make the easy pass rather than than forcing things. He needs to be playing five on five once he's rested up a little bit. He needs to be, uh, you know, going through all those kinds of progressions, almost like a quarterback as compared to this, uh, you know, one on one jouster, which it seems like that's what he likes to do during his summers. Right. 
He's got mm -hmm. all the footwork and the technique. He's got that stuff mastered. It's in his bag. He knows what to do with it. Now he needs to start playing five on five basketball. He needs to play. Uh, he needs to find his vision. You know, he just has to. Otherwise, yeah. he is going to get capped in terms of who he can be as a guy. It's absolutely brutal. Like I don't. I haven't looked at the numbers, but whatever Tatum was shooting at the rim in this series. It had to be like neck and neck with Draymond's three point percentage because he just couldn't convert anything at the rim. And that's what I would work on most this summer is like develop a, a, a few reliable moves as you're getting into the lane because he's taking all these incredibly tough shots. He also isn't good in the mid range. And this applies to the entire Celtics team, really. Like, they're far too reliant on the three, and they just do not have any other option for their offense. Like, they don't have another counter they can throw at teams if the threes aren't falling or if teams try to take away their threes. They don't have, uh, you know, plan B. And that is not really a shot at, you know, Ime or anybody. It's just like the talent is kind of limited. Like, that's not what Tatum excels at, that's not what Jalen excels at. And it's certainly not what Smart excels at. All those guys like to settle for threes, contested or not. Like that, those are the shots they're most comfortable taking. And all of them need either need to grow out of it or go somewhere else uh, because it's it's not a sustainable year over year like championship formula. And you mentioned it being a crossroads moment for Tatum. If if you're asking me, do I take Tatum or Luca in a vacuum? And it like with a blank roster, um, I would definitely take Luca because he has more value. He gives you a higher baseline and, and definitely raises your floor. I do think if you're asking like which of those guys are you taking for the next five to seven years in their current situations, I probably still take Tatum because he's a well, good defender you, and can You're taking win. the Celtics though, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of taking the Celtics over the maps. Basically. Yeah, well, Tatum with a few other useful pieces, you can win a lot with Tatum. I'm not sure how much you can really win with Luka. And look, he's proven me wrong time and time again. So it is what it is, but it's just not really my preferred style of basketball. But whatever the hell this was from Tatum the past couple of games is definitely not my preferred style either. And I, I don't know what was going on. Like, I'm sure there will be some injury whispers after all of this. I think your fatigue theory is probably the most likely explanation. But it, it eventually just turned into like an out-of-body experience for him. And it was hard to watch. And as you talk about the crossroads moment, like, this could sort of break his reputation. He could also but it respond. Didn't, like, that's the thing. I mean, going back to the Paul George thing. I mean, if Paul George had shot six for 18 with five turnovers, we're hearing playoff P jokes for days. Mm -hmm. I thought Tatum got off easy in this series, man. You think so? Because I'm not going to be able to look at him the same way after the way he well, closed good. this out. I'm glad, but I just feel like he didn't become the butt of every Twitter joke for two weeks straight, and he probably should have been. I mean, he was really bad in the last four games, and I feel like people still give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, remember we were talking about winning outfits versus losing outfits? Mm -hmm. Can I tell you one thing that really bolstered my sense that the Warriors were going to win game six in Boston tonight? 
is when Tatum showed up for game six in just like a normal outfit. He didn't have a Tiger Woods t-shirt, Michael Jordan t-shirt, Kobe Bryant t-shirt. He like <laughs> gave up on the greats. Uh, to me, like he kind of knew, right? It's like, well, I don't, we're, we're probably losing this game. Steph's the one who should be wearing these t-shirts. Steph is the one who's in these kinds of conversations. So maybe I just wear, you know, my, my backup outfit, right? Maybe oh, I don't man. go with the full, like, uh, you know, superstar greatness uh, t-shirts that he's been rocking for the, the last two weeks. But Good. Um, I mean, that's one of the best decisions he's made over the final three sure. games of this season. <laughs> well, you're talking about recalibrating. Nobody needs to recalibrate their Jason Tatum takes more than Jason Tatum. That's, that's my opinion. Yes. He also, the day before game six, you know, he had that little skirmish with Draymond in game five where he wouldn't give psyched up the basketball. Out. Totally and psyched out. Tatum carried a basketball with him everywhere he went at practice and afterward as he's meeting with the media. And I think he tipped off a Celtics photographer to what was happening there. And... um the Celtics photographer then took pictures of him meeting with all these different people with the basketball and tweeted out like Jason Tatum is not letting go of this basketball. Very today. cool. Very it's cool. Like, yeah. Not quite as bad as the Kobe stuff, but very nearly as corny and just like cringeworthy as the Kobe stuff. Um, all of well, that stuff it probably contributed to the loss tonight. Coming into this series, I said Draymond needed to beat or break the Celtics young stars mentally particularly Jason Tatum. And, you know, he first really did that to J Jalen Brown in game two with their little brouhaha. But I think he was completely in Jason Tatum's head as this series unfolded with all the, the help defense, the doubling, you know, scaring him, the turnovers, all of it. I mean, I, I do think a lot of Tatum's struggles were physical, but I think a lot of them were mental too. He just wasn't ready for the moment. That happens. It's a learning process. Hopefully he, he takes the right lessons from it. And he comes back um, with a more developed all-around offensive package and a better calm presence in the big moments. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it'll I be think a test because look, you mentioned the Kobe airball. That was when Kobe was 18 years old, <laughs> and, right. and Jason Tatum has made several deep playoff runs. Like he's an he's an old, experienced 24, and um, yet he's still going to have to sort of start over. Uh, beginning next season and I know that's going to sound like an overreaction to people but like this was bad and he's going to have to prove himself among the superstar st the, the superstar group uh, as he heads into the rest of his career well it's I mean Tatum to me it's like he's driving a car down the freeway right and he's doing for the last couple of years before this year in the playoffs He's going like five miles under the speed limit. He's just staying out of the way. He's not really exerting his presence on the action for, you know, the bubble year and some of these other, you know, Kyrie's year and everything else. It was, it, he was kind of, uh, you know, taking a backseat to things. He wasn't really, you know, stepping on the gas, right? Mm -hmm. This year, I felt like somebody was up behind him on the freeway honking and he was like, oh, God, I must be going too slow. So he just jammed his foot on the gas pedal, and he's doing like 140 on the freeway until his car is just like runs out of oil or whatever. You know, like it, he just needs to kind of settle into like just that nice 82 and a 65 like everybody else, you know, just like kind of get into that groove where you're not trying to do way too much like you did this year, but you're also not trying to do way too little like you did in some of these previous postseason runs. 
And I think the only way to get there is through experience. You know, it's not like Steph Curry won a title his first postseason run. LeBron didn't win a title his first postseason run. Basically, nobody did besides Magic Johnson, right? So um, this is not to write off Tatum forever, but I do think he is right on that Paul George trajectory. Remember, the Pacers had a number of Eastern Conference Finals runs early in his career. We thought that was going to lead to something spectacular down the road. Unfortunately, he did break his leg. And uh, no, you know, has, no, no, no. Look, I, not everybody thought it was leading somewhere crazy for Paul George. Like Paul George, even during those Pacers runs, would have one game where he just looked unbelievable, and then the next game he would completely fall apart, and like the Heat would win easily. Right, but like, I'm, I'm well, taking what the hell happened at Paul George, future Hall of Famer. Right, but I'm taking 22, 23 year old Paul George over what we just saw from Jason Tatum in the playoffs. I mean, again, there, there's no one I'm taking over what we just saw from Tatum and many of his teammates over the final three games of this series. I mean, like it, it, it the wheels came off for all of them, um, and it's hard to explain exactly what happened. I do want to single out Al Horford. He was great in Game Six, and it makes me happy that he showed up in some big moments in this series and that whether he gets a ring or not with the Celtics, he's going to be like a a lifetime hero in that city and everyone will love him for the next 40 years. Um, And he's a great dude and a great player. So it makes me happy that he'll have that legacy. Well, they didn't win the title. So I don't know if he's going to have 40 years of love and they were getting no during this particular game like he's you know they came up short here's the thing i'm telling the relationship the relationship with tatum is going to be very complicated going forward unless he's able to sort of salvage things over the next few seasons but horford it's just blind love i think in in boston and that's a good thing um yeah i'm just saying uh, twenty thousand people i did not Love, not in the air, okay? (laughs) That was not in the air tonight. That's not what I was feeling. Well, look, speaking of the opposite of love, let's close with one question from Eric and then one question from Daniel about uh, league-wide matters. So Eric says this, all year I looked at the Celtics and thought to myself, look at that, another Eastern Conference team with a good top seven, playing hard, playing together, and winning some regular season games. Can't wait for Ben to call them out as another cute story who can't actually win a title. And I waited and waited and waited, but for some reason, Ben never did. Sure, they made the finals, but the Nets were a mess. The Bucks were missing their second best player, and the Heat were equally cute story-esque. Even after game one of the finals, I was watching the Celtics thinking, nah, this can't happen. And yet somehow, after game three, Ben convinced me to get excited and take them seriously. Shame on you, Ben Golliver. So, Mm -hmm. Ben, Mm -hmm. do you have a response to this loyal listener who put all his faith in you and then was betrayed at at one of the biggest moments of the NBA season? I mean, it sounds to me like he invested his entire 401k in like Bitcoin, something like bet it all on the Celtics (laughs) after game three. Um, this was a weird year. You know, we're in June now. I think we should think back to what December and January was like with the pandemic and like how there was like 35 man rosters and like Joe Johnson almost got a ring with the Celtics this year, you know, Uh because he was like out there for a few weeks there. Um, 
So this was just a different challenging year. And when the Celtics are kind of, they, they were bad for the first three, four months of it. And I was kind of like, you know, killing them when they came through LA in December, I was like, this team is terrible. Like they weren't even close to being a cute story. Now, when they're putting it together down the stretch, um, and you're looking at that Eastern Conference landscape, like we talked about quite a bit. I mean, we had, uh, you know, personally, I was guilty of having a little bit too much faith um, in the Nets early in the season. Then I completely sold all Nets stock, right? And it, it, in that void, I really didn't know who was going to step up. I assumed it was going to be the Milwaukee Bucks, but, you know, Chris Middleton kind of foiled that. With the healthy Middleton, I really believe the Milwaukee Bucks win that series, uh, probably six mm-hmm. games uh, in the second round. And, um, you know, the Eastern Conference, it produces so many cute stories year after year. It's hard to kind of keep up with all of them. Um, but this was a team that made the finals. This was a team that did scare the Golden State Warriors, like you described. This was a team that could potentially have won this series, you know, if they had played against Phoenix, if it had somehow been Memphis, if it had been Dallas, you know. There are some other scenarios where I could have seen them just ride in this defense all the way to the title. And in general, I do respect teams that have elite defenses, typically more than teams that are sort of like uh, elite offenses with questionable defenses, right? Like the Celtics profile is more likely for me to take seriously than the reverse, which would be like the Chicago Bulls or the Atlanta Hawks or these teams that just run up a whole bunch of points, but I never trust them to be able to stop anybody on the other end. So I think that's why I was a little bit more deferential to these Celtics um, than maybe he was, ex- uh, you know, expecting mm-hmm. my overreaction to game three, not going to apologize for that. I was, I was mortified at the concept that Steph Curry was going to be injured. And as you astutely pointed out, I played the hardest and the greatest reverse <laughs> jinx in the history of podcasts, arguably, it worked yeah. out brilliantly. They won three games straight. I get to go home like three or four days early because there's no game seven. I got nothing to apologize for. Sorry, Eric. Shame on you. As, as this series is mythologized over the years, I, I hope everyone remembers game three and the post game three goat podcast. I think that's instantly one of our top five most legendary podcasts and um, it will crack me up forever probably. Uh, and it did work. It swung the series to golden state. Um, so great job by you. I don't have any more Celtics thoughts as we close this out. Apologies oh. to user. Uh, and Andrew, both of your Celtics questions were too sad to read on the air tonight after well, watching have, that depressing Celtics ending. What, what's your final thought? Well, rapid. I had rapid fire questions for you about the Celtics. Oh God! So I'm next in the hot year. seat here. <laughs> Great. Yeah, you're on the hot seat. You've got some factors coming at you. Are you ready? Um, Can't wait. 2023 Finals. Celtics in or out? Out. I'm picking honest again. 20- I, I'm actually in a dangerous spot with picks, by the way, because it's it's now real enough. Like Giannis has figured it out play playoff wise, and it's going to be very difficult for me to pick against him every single spring. Uh, I'm going to have to figure out a way to handle it. It's like that with Carolina. When Carolina is good, it's it's hard for me to join bracket pools because I just pick them to win the title every year, and th- that's where we are <laughs> with Giannis. Um, that's so. Fine. We'll I mean, see. I, I picked Giannis this year too um, in our bracket pool. Um, 2023 Eastern Conference Finals, Celtics in or Celtics out? Um, 
Whew. Celtics in, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel good to, to pick the Celtics to win anything right now, but I look at the rest of the East and it's hard to see many teams that are going to beat them. And I, I am not confident in what Miami will be bringing to the table next year. Actually, I think Miami's going to make a trade Ooh. and perhaps add someone like Bradley Beal, like someone of that caliber. Miami's going to be gunning for this offseason. So um, on that basis, I will pick Miami to be the conference finalist opposite Milwaukee next year. Okay. Um, I'm out on Brooklyn. I'm out on Philly. Um, Miami, I do think, is a TBD based on this summer. I'm out on basically everybody else. So I do feel like, you know, next year's conference, you know, it's going to shape up. I feel like probably Milwaukee versus Boston, most likely. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. it's not going to be Chicago and some of these other teams, right? Um, fast forward to 2025. Does conventional wisdom, not Andrew Sharp's unconventional wisdom, but conventional wisdom, Jason Tatum or Cade Cunningham? Ooh. So, because so many of the things. Consensus is what you're asking here. Yeah, I'm saying like who's going to be kind of, you know, a top 100, who's going to be ranked higher, who would people want to start a franchise around? I'm asking the question because I've been harping on a lot of the weaknesses in Tatum's game that I feel like come naturally to Cade, right? But he hasn't won anything. He hasn't shown mm-hmm. the ability to kind of transform that franchise as a rookie, but he's very young. They're trying to kind of build things around him a little bit. He's similar size physique-wise to Jason Tatum. I think he's got a little bit more leadership moxie than a Jason Tatum. And I'm just wondering at what point do their curves cross? I mean, 2025, that could be a little bit aggressive, right? Um, But uh, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, the thing to underscore here is that 2025 is in like two and a half years. And so I think everybody forgets how far along how far along we are in the 2020s. Um, so two and a half years from now. <laughs> Thanks, can, Siri, for the calendar yeah, reminder. <laughs> well, I don't know. Time's kind of a blur. Everybody keeps saying that um, in the last two years, it felt like two weeks or 10 years, depending on the moment. Um, so Cade Cunningham... My concern with Cade, look, like I would take Tatum over Luca because I think Luca's developing some bad habits in Dallas and it's going to be hard to unlearn some of that stuff. And my worry with Cade is that the Pistons approach this in the laziest way possible and just hand him the ball for 40 minutes a game and say, do everything for us and create everything. And he's good enough to do that at a pretty high level and give them a pretty high baseline. But I I don't think that's like the best version of his game. He can also be a threat off the ball and move and, you know, I just sort of diversify the offense that way. And so I, I don't think the Pistons will do that. I don't really trust the Pistons. Um, so I will tell I'll take Tatum in two and a half years, but I, I, I hold out hope that maybe the Pistons surprise me and we see a more evolved approach to developing Cade. Really solid breakdown. I, I could not uh, disagree with pretty much any of that. I mean, it may be 2027. Does, does Cade get there? It's possible. I'm going to mm-hmm. be tracking that one. I think it's going to be an interesting comparison point when you're looking at some of these younger rising players, um, you know, with a real uh, high potential um, in the Eastern Conference. Okay, last rapid fire question for you. I know it's almost 3 a.m., so thanks for hanging <laughs> yeah. in with yep. me. Career titles 
with the Boston Celtics for Jason Tatum. 0.5 over under. What you got? Oh, wow. Um, again, I, I really hope we don't have any Celtics fans listening to this podcast. It's <laughs> been a rough seven days. <laughs> um, I will say... Sounds to oh, me like you're going under like the crustaceans on the bottom of the lobster boat, Andrew. Oh, man. I don't know. I mean, like... I, Tatum with the Celtics. Look, if it's Mar- Marcus Smart, I don't think it's going to work with Marcus Smart running the offense at Boston. And so if you were asking this about Smart, that's an easy under. But maybe they're able to flip Marcus Smart and change up the equation sometime over the next few years while they still have Jalen, while Robert Williams is coming into his own. Horford, we all know, is going to play till he's 45. Uh, I'm going to go over just because... Like my wife, I'm pulling for Jason Tatum mostly out of sympathy at this point. So um, I'm not going to end this night saying Jason Tatum will never win a title with the Celtics. But I think that's probably the the better play if we're being objective about it. What do you think? I mean, just for, you know, entertainment's sake, I'm going under, Andrew. I'm pounding the under. <laughs> uh, no, we'll see. I mean, it, it's... I think that, you know, how we were describing it earlier, the crossroads moments, absolutely true for him. I cannot wait to see how he responds. And after the last three games, just like you've been describing, I don't have a lot of faith in the response. Um, it's crazy. Sometimes it hurts to be this right sometimes, don't you think, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, well, one final question from Daniel. What's everyone's take on the potential Luca-Christian Wood pairing? I saw this trade as a lateral move for both sides, but I'd love to know your thoughts. Daniel, it's going to be a disaster in Dallas. Uh, I would (laughs) not trade for Christian Wood. If I were a lottery team, if I were a playoff team, I definitely wouldn't trade for Christian Wood. But good luck to Luka and the Mavs trying to bring the best out of Christian Wood. I don't know. But that will transition us to next week when we're talking draft and all sorts of different stuff around the league. We'll move on from finals mode uh, as as much fun as this has been. Do you have any final thoughts on the the wood deal before we uh, take off here? I think it's going to be one of those classic ones where there's a real crest during the regular season where he's putting up, you know, big enough numbers and like, you know, has a high enough PER that, you know, certain people are out there trying to say like Christian Wood, man, he's a fringe all-star candidate, right? And like <laughs> Luke is hitting him with all these lob passes and things are kind of going well. And then I think it's just kind of, you know, it's going to go the other way once you get to the postseason and he's just, you know, completely overmatched and overmanned, uh, you know, in, in that framework. And he's not really solving the problems that uh, Dallas needs to solve. Well, you know, lateral move, I don't really know about that. I'm not sure how much they cared about that pick and the expiring contracts were nothing. So I guess it's worth a shot. Um, mm. But there's also, you know, uh, a possibility that he winds up being sort of like a shooter for them, right? Where, like, they just move on after six months because they got their taste of the Christian Wood experience and they realized it kind of wasn't going anywhere, right? So, yeah, I guess if, if I was in the room and they're polling me, I'm like, is there nothing else we can get with our expiring contracts? And then they're coming back and they're like, <laughs> no, we've been calling everybody. There's nothing else out there. And I'd be like, all right, sure, why not? But then at the whole time, I'd be thinking, this is not going to work in April. Oh, man. Well, the other funny aspect of this is everybody's sort of praising the Rockets for opening up space in the front court to bring in Alperin Sengun, 
who is, I mean, his Q rating among NBA bloggers and media personalities, like people are really high on that guy. He can't play defense either, and it's going to be a disaster every minute he's on the floor in that front court. So I don't really know. It does feel like a lateral move, Christian Wood to Alperin Sangoon. Sangoon's a better passer, a niftier post moves, uh, more aesthetically pleasing, but I'm not sure he's that much different in terms of like the ceiling with uh, with him in the mix. But in any event, um, maybe Paolo Bancaro will be there next next week. So that's a tease for our draft coverage. For now, it's yeah. a po- it's approaching 3 a.m. So I do have to go to bed, but this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, you want to talk about some cute story teams, you know, that can't play defense and are going to get people excited during the regular season. Jalen Green, Paolo, and Sengun. I will never, <laughs> ever buy into those guys. Andrew, I wish you weren't tired so we could read this long email we just got from Tyler, which starts with uh, the sentence, if 12-time enterprises wants to reach its full potential, it needs to appoint Mr. Benjamin Golliver as president and CEO. Andrew, should I take over the distress company? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe we can read don't the rest of that it. email. Yeah. I've been, be week. responsible, Ben. As as your friend, I'm not going to let you take over 12-time enterprises Dude. until the brand is a little bit less radioactive. But the thing is, there's a lot of money in crises, man. I mean, we've really <laughs> learned that over these last couple of years. If you're trying to get rich, you know, run towards the crisis, Andrew. All right. I'm uh, at Ben.Golliver on Instagram, at Ben.Golliver on Twitter. Go check out the Instagram and Twitter for finals updates, the Stephen Curry story, all sorts of fun behind-the-scenes photos and video from the celebration. Andrew, there's a great video of Steph Curry raising that finals MVP trophy, redesigned by by our guy, Victor Solomon, the artist. And then Mm -hmm. Clay Thompson just comes by dancing through the frame, just, you know, like he's a little kid having the time of his life. Good, good stuff on that parquet floor uh email us greatest of all talk at gmail.com greatest of all talk at gmail.com as andrew said we're shifting gears rapidly to nba draft talk so bring on all your chat hypotheticals we want them all right and guys you can find andrew on social media actually don't even worry about it andrew thanks so much for staying up late to knock this out in the afterglow i'll be flying back to the best coast the west coast And I believe the Warriors are bringing the Larry O'Brien trophy back with them. 16 and 8 since Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls run for the Western Conference. It feels so nice to have that golden ball back home. All right, Andrew, until next week, I will talk to you. I'm happy for you, man. Float on back to the West Coast with all this positive energy. I'll talk to you next week.